is a memory made of? What parts of the brain help us remember? And what can taxi drivers' brains tell us about how memories are made? I'm Anna Machen, and I'm an evolutionary anthropologist. In this series from the Bertarelli Foundation, I'm going behind the scenes of some of the most cutting-edge neuroscience research to explore our brains from before birth to after death. And this week, we're diving into the world of memories and how we remember them. In one of the taxi papers, there was a call for taxi drivers to volunteer to have a brain scan. One of the first worrying signs is going out somewhere, taking a trip somewhere and then getting lost. Our answers are much more vague and nebulous than, than you would anticipate. This is how we're wired. Our memories are precious to us. Whether pleasant or painful, in many ways they make us who we are. They also help us understand and navigate the world, from recalling who is friend or foe to remembering the route back home. And some people have really got the navigate the world part down, or at least one specific part of the world. I'm Mark Kennedy. I'm a London licensed taxi driver. I've been doing it for just over 30 years and I'm married two boys, well, growing up boys now, and I live in Essex. With its sprawling streets and web of one-way roads, London is known to be a tricky city to drive in. But London black cab drivers like Mark navigate their way around with ease and their brains have fascinated scientists as a result. In one of the taxi papers, there was a call for taxi drivers to volunteer to have a brain scan because it is uh, thought that London taxi drivers have a bigger part of the brain, which I believe is the hippocampus, than other people. And so I thought, well, well why not? I'll, uh, I'll volunteer and, um, yeah, see what happens. So, yeah, I've got an appointment very shortly, see if it's uh, true or not. Our producer, Eva, accompanied Mark in London on the day of his scan they got started talking about the exam that's at the heart of becoming a London cabbie, known as the knowledge. Ah, the knowledge is a process of making sure you know the streets and points in London. You book yourself in for a series of appearances in front of examiners and they ask you questions, for example, take me from the British Museum to Buckingham Palace or sometimes a lot more obscure than that. And then eventually, when you reach a certain standard... Yeah, you've passed your knowledge and you've uh, you got your badge to work. How long did you spend studying for it? How long does the process take? It took me just over three years. I bought a motorbike for my brother. He'd qualified before me. And it started off, you really just, you go out on the motorbike and you learn the, the runs that you're given. I used to call over with my wife, which she used to sort of say to me, you know, test me on the runs I'd done. Eventually I found another knowledge boy lived near me so we used to meet up a couple of times a week to test each other yeah it was mainly weekends I was out on the bike and during the week it was at home looking at maps sort of familiarize yourself with what you've been doing at the weekend really so you've been I mean 30 years is a long time to have been driving around London do you feel like you know it like the back of your hand how how comfortable are you do you know where you are at all times I know where I am in what area I am you still get caught out you know, occasionally you'll get a example of a hotel that's changed its name. But uh, no, most of the time, I know where I am, yeah. <laughs> so what about your memory in general? Because what we're looking at here is, you know, memory for different locations and how to get from A to B to C to D. Do you think you have a good memory for general life? 
I don't know. Getting from A to B, yeah, I've got a reasonably good sense of direction anyway, even if I'm outside London. But I'm not sure. This is what's what I do. I've been doing it for 30 years. This is what you do. So, you know, you get given, someone gets in the cab and you sort of just, you sort of switch into automatic. But um, in general, I don't know. I'm, I'm better at things, like a lot of people, better at things that happened years ago. I'm good at remembering music from the 60s, 70s, 80s, that sort of thing, what the band is. But as far as I, c- I couldn't even tell you who scored a goal for Tottenham, even though I'm a regular there. People say, do you remember that goal so-and-so? And I said, oh, no, I don't. No. I get reminded of it, and I say, oh, yeah, I was there. <laughs> Think, things like that, you know. I haven't got a bad memory, you know, really, for certain things, let's say. It sounds like you'd be good in the music round of a pub quiz, which I am absolutely useless at. They're the ones I look forward to, yeah. Music round for sort of uh, 60s, 70s music, yeah, great. I, I can, uh, I'm normally OK with that. How do you feel going into the scan? A bit apprehensive because it's uh, well, something I've never done. You know, it's something new, but um, I'm, I've been assured it's totally safe. I hope it is. And the only problem is I've been told I've got to lay still and not talk. <laughs> it's very difficult. Uh, yeah, slightly apprehensive, but I'm sure, it, I'm sure it'll be fine. We'll hear more from Mark as he gets into the scanner later. But first, he mentioned the hippocampus as being the part of the brain that is different in taxi drivers. So... What is the hippocampus? And what other parts of the brain are involved in making memories? And actually, what is a memory in the first place? I sat down with Professor Amy Milton, who researches mechanisms of memory at the University of Cambridge. So just tell me, how's your memory? Have you got a good memory? <laughs> My memory's dreadful. So we have this joke in the department that, you know, you, you study what you're deficient in, right? And my memory is really bad. Actually, my, I should clarify, my, my memory for events and my episodic memory is really bad. I am really dreadful. I drive my husband mad um, because we'll go somewhere and I'll say, this seems really familiar. And he's like, yeah, we went here last year with these people on this day. He's like, oh yeah, did we? Great. <laughs> That's absolutely brilliant. I like the idea that we study what we're deficient in, which basically means I'm deficient in social behaviour, which is a little bit worrying. <laughs> anyway, so let's go back to the absolute basics. What do we mean when we talk about memory? What is memory? So that's a really good question because you'd think it's the kind of thing that science would have a really good answer to. And actually, it turns out our answers are much more vague and nebulous than than you would anticipate. So we think that when a memory forms in the brain, it's to do with different brain cells talking to each other in a particular pattern. So you experience the world, brain cells will become activated in a particular pattern that reflects that experience. And we think that as a memory forms, that pattern becomes almost like solidified. So the brain cells that are talking to each other undergo certain changes in their, um, like their signaling to each other, which probably is also reflected in structural changes in the brain cells themselves that mean when you present some of the information again and some of that pattern becomes um, sort of reactivated again or retrieved, this then leads the entire pattern to come back. And that we refer to as a memory trace or an engram. Oh, wow. Okay, so when you experience the thing, this trace is formed in your brain, Mm -hmm. this this image or this, this pattern of cell activation. And then 
if something else triggers that, then we get a little bit of that and then it kind of completes the whole... It can come back in full again. That's right, yeah. So these these brain cells talk to each other more during experience and then because if that experience is worth remembering... um, then you will have changes in the way that those cells talk to each other. So it basically becomes, we think, more efficient. So you set off part of the pattern again and the whole pattern comes back and that would be recall of a memory. Okay, so which bits of the brain are involved in memory? So when we talk about memory, we normally talk about um, a particular type of memory that we refer to as episodic memory. So this is memory for episodes or events. And that's the kind of memory that allows you to say what you had for breakfast this morning or what you did last weekend or, you know, what you did on your last birthday. It comes under, in fact, a subcategory that we call declarative memory or explicit memory. So this fits alongside another type of memory, which is called semantic memory. That's memory for facts. So all the stuff that you would learn in school and you know that sort of thing would come under semantic memory. And both episodic and semantic can be passed on in words. And you know consciously what the content of those memories are. So you have conscious access to that. But that's only one subclass of long-term memory. The other subclass, we refer to that as implicit or non-declarative memory. And these are memories where you can't pass them on in words and you might not have conscious access to the content of that memory. Now, that sounds really vague and abstract, but I think a really nice example of this is something like riding a bike. Because you know you can ride a bike, that's fine. You have a semantic memory of you know yourself that you are capable of riding a bike but if you had to try to explain to somebody else in words how you do that so which muscles you contract how you hold your joints relative to each other how fast you have to pedal so that the bike isn't unstable actually you don't really have conscious awareness of any of those things but it is learned it is a memory because there was a point when you couldn't ride a bike you practiced And at some point, then you became capable of doing it. So all of that memory is in there, but you don't have conscious awareness of exactly what the content of that memory is. And you can't pass it on in words. Okay. And if we look at the brain, do those different sorts of memories sit in different bits of the brain? Or are they all in the same area? They do sit in different bits of the brain. So for the most part, you can point to areas and kind of refer to that the type of memory that they are more involved in. So it is true to say that the hippocampus is more involved in episodic memory. Regions like the amygdala, so this is a little almond-shaped structure, sits just in front of the hippocampus, and that's really involved in emotional memory, so knowing which things in the environment are good and which things in the environment are bad. So there are different parts of the brain that are all supporting more these different types of memory and the hippocampus is quite distinctive isn't it can you tell me what it looks like yeah it looks like a seahorse hence the name Um, (laughs) and the amygdala looks like an almond all of this anatomy is basically it's named after what it looks like but in latin or greek Um, so yeah so the hippocampus looks like a seahorse it's got this very particular structure the hippocampus is more evolutionarily ancient um, and it has this really good the, the, the structure of the hippocampus In computational terms, it's referred to as an auto-associator. It basically means that it feeds back a lot onto itself. So if you think about sort of the type of learning that's involved in 
event memory or episodic memory, you're not consciously trying to remember like where was I, when was it, who's here with me, what's the context, like it all just happens automatically and without effort. And is there a reason why, for example, some things like smelling something or hearing a particular tune is quite good at bringing a memory back? Mm -hmm. Is there a reason for that? Yeah, so particularly for the smell thing actually so scents are really good at evoking memories so the amygdala and the hippocampus do sit very closely together and they talk to each other a lot so as well as encoding emotional memory in its own right the amygdala can influence how well the hippocampus stores memories so if you have something that is exciting or interesting or particularly kind of emotionally arousing that makes it more likely that the hippocampus will store that as an episodic memory. It's a good kind of emotional tone is a really good indicator that this is something that you need to remember. Now, there are limits to that. As you get into trauma, then actually that relationship changes. But for, you know, emotional, normal range of emotion, emotional experience, the amygdala makes it more likely that the hippocampus will store that episode because if it evoked good emotions, then that's probably going to be something that you need to remember and for sense there is a pathway that goes directly from the olfactory system to the amygdala so nearly every sensory system has to stop in a region called the thalamus so every sensory system besides this one pathway from smell to the amygdala stops in the thalamus and then the thalamus can you know contribute to the decision as to whether you're going to process that information or not But because this scent pathway bypasses the thalamus, you've got a direct route into this emotional centre, which is then more likely to drive what the hippocampus is doing. So memories are patterns of activity in the brain, which means that actually saying something sparked your memory is pretty accurate. But what about when you are learning something and creating a memory? What changes are happening in the brain? Eva's here to explain. From the sound of a bike bell to the daydream you get lost in during a meeting, our brains are constantly receiving stimulation from our environment and manipulating information, causing nerve cells to talk to each other via their tiny connections called synapses. And it's these synapses that are thought to be at the heart of memory. Think of a nerve cell or neuron. The spiky bits that you'll recognise from textbooks are called dendrites, and at the end of these small projections lie the synapses. If you think of a neuron as a tree, then the dendrites are the branches, and the leaves on the end of the branches are the synapses. It's thought that when we learn something new, new leafy connections, synapses, form between the trees. That allows electrical or chemical signalling to occur between the cells. The more we practice something, the more the specific synapses related to that skill are used and the stronger that connection becomes. Cells that fire together, wire together, as neuroscientists like to say. But synapses are fussy and if they aren't being reinforced, they can die away, leaving you to forget where you put your passport last year, for example. But Although the process of really deeply learning something can take time, as we've all experienced, we're also capable of remembering our activities on a shorter timeline. And that's where the difference between short-term and long-term memory comes in. Famous memory researcher Suzanne Corkin described the difference by saying that if memory was a hotel, short-term memory would be the lobby and long-term memory would be the guest rooms. 
and it's a fast-paced lobby. When neuroscientists talk about short-term memory, they are normally referring to our ability to store information for about 30 seconds. Memory consolidation is the process by which something goes from short-term memory to long-term, and it occurs in several stages. The hippocampus guides this process, helping control the restructuring of that forest of trees and connections. And if there's one thing you remember from this, make it that sleep is massively important for memory consolidation. So it's worth it to try and sleep enough if you're trying to remember something. One of my strongest memories of trying to learn something was when I was learning to drive, which itself was quite anxiety-heightening for me. But what I remember was initially I had to really concentrate on every movement I had to make or every decision that came up before me. But as time went on, I realised that I was spending less and less time consciously attending to what I was doing. And as Mark said, for him to learn everything he needed to pass the knowledge required a lot of studying both from books and biking around London to consolidate what he'd read. And that has almost definitely made the changes to his brain that researchers in the Taxi Brains project are hoping to investigate. I spoke to Professor Hugo Spears at UCL, who is leading the project, about the history of taxi brain research and what they are hoping to discover over the next few years. This project goes back 22 years, so an amazing researcher called Eleanor Maguire was aware that these London taxi drivers, they've learned somewhere between 25 to 58,000 street names and how they're all connected, and they have to use that on a daily basis to navigate. They're unlike any other taxi driver on the planet. Eleanor Maguire thought, oh, that's interesting, they have to memorise that, and then their job is to use that knowledge every day, all day long. And she was aware of work in other species, so squirrels and birds, where if they have to store and use their memory for space, like where nuts are stored in winter, then they have these changes in their hippocampus. And she she wondered, could this be the case in London taxi drivers? So she took a look at them back in 2000, published an article showing that the posterior part towards the back of the head in the hippocampus, it was actually larger in London taxi drivers compared to non-drivers. And it seemed to be the longer they've been working as taxi drivers, the larger their posterior hippocampus had become. And then in some follow-up studies, we've showed that taxi drivers are, are special compared to bus drivers in London. So bus drivers provide this fantastic match where they spend all day driving around London. They can match them for years of experience. They deal with customers. They sit in the traffic fumes, all of those things that might be important for driving the effect. And London bus drivers' brains are quite boring. <laughs> so 22 years after the discovery, number one thing we're exploring is going back and trying now in 2022 to replicate these key findings. Can we see this again in a larger cohort of taxi drivers and we can look in more detail technology's moved on we can look and see which bits of the hippocampus if there are bits that have are, are particularly changed in, in london taxi drivers so we want to know more detail and have you followed people from before they start learning that can you see the hippocampus like growing in real time as it were over that period of time yeah i, I wasn't involved in the study but eleanor mcguire she's been able to show that within individuals it's not just uh, if you take a random taxi driver you take someone who's agreed to start training their brains are the normal size the hippocampus is the same size as non people who want to train but they found significant changes after passing the exam you know two to four years later so you can see it but the exciting thing the thing i like most about that paper was there's a group of taxi drivers who spent all those years training didn't pass the exams and there was no change in their hippocampus so wow yeah okay could, so it does seem like it's not just 
taking part that counts is actually memorizing and having that knowledge and being able to pull it out that changes the brain. It's not just exposure. So there may be some something that makes some people able to do this and others not. I was going to say, but does that mean, therefore, that there are some people who could try and do it and will never, ever be able to do it? There's something about this special group of people, maybe, who are predisposed to be able to do it? Yeah, that's exactly. The, it's a fascinating question. So I think I might be one of those people. I'm not sure I'd ever be able to memorize that much. They, If you talk to them, they will say to you, like, they say, look, you know, when you step out of your house and you go and get, you know, go to the shops and pick something up, you don't have to think about it. You just know it. You don't think hard about it. They say it's like that, but it's just 58,000 of it. That's not me at all. I literally, I mean, I have the worst sense of direction. I remember actually doing my master's at UCL. I had one route through the college. And on the very last day, somebody showed me a shortcut. But I I cannot, I don't have that spatial awareness to be able to create new routes or get round blocks or I will just literally sit in the queue. And when these, I mean, you said these, these people work very late, but when they do stop, does the hippocampus start to shrink? So we had a paper in 2009 where we did exactly that to ask if we took a group of active taxi drivers and an age-matched group who had retired, could we see differences in their brain? And with a very small sample, so to be very careful, it's, it's very preliminary work and it's something we'd love to follow up on. We could see a difference. So they were they were less good at navigating in a, in a test of navigating London when they retired and their hippocampus was on average slightly smaller than the currently working taxi drivers in a particular part of the posterior hippocampus. So there is some evidence that there is a use it or lose it component to if you're not keeping up with it, your brain may change again. It may actually not continue to grow or it may not stay at the same state. So there's lots we we really need to, to study these, these people more. And are there applications for this understanding? I mean, you spoke about, you know, keeping people's brains active. I mean, could we apply this knowledge ultimately to things like dementia to age-related degeneration in the brain. So here we have this fascinating story in my view that as we get older our brains generally get a bit smaller if they decline a bit. With Alzheimer's disease it's absolutely shocking the scans of a brain of someone with severe Alzheimer's disease. It really shrinks down to the size of an orange and uh, it's, it's devastating. Particularly in the first bit that is damaged is the hippocampus and the area around it, particularly bits around it. But here, on the other side of the story, we have a group of individuals, London taxi drivers, where the longer they, they are working away, the larger this bit of the brain is coming. This is going up with age. It should be going down. And so they are providing this different story in terms of what's going on there. So while we're studying Alzheimer's patients in our lab to understand how their navigation skills being disrupted through the disease, we can study London taxi drivers to see how the their skill is enhancing this part of the brain, how what is it they're doing. So this information could be fed together to really help understand diagnostics, but like observations about lifestyle, how doing these sorts of things, these activities, do they do they help? Might they be useful for more of us to be thinking more actively about our environment and engaging with it and, and those sorts of questions. So there's a lot to be gained from studying London taxi drivers because they're the opposite. And all of this will feed into improving tests that will hopefully catch the disease earlier. One of the first worrying signs is going out somewhere, taking a trip somewhere, and then getting lost. They normally just go take a walk to somewhere nearby, but they just can't find their way back. And it never used to bother them before, but suddenly they're they're lost. And so having a diagnostic tool that can pick that up and say, yes, you are actually really finding this hard. We can quantify it. It's not just your you're telling us that, but actually where you fall. And then being able to monitor it, to be able to say, 
yeah, it's really declining or it's stable or, and then eventually we might have drugs that can treat it and say, oh, you know, you've actually have improved. We need that kind of science. We can't just rely on people's story. For me, the possibility that Hugo's work has an application in the study of dementia is really personal. For the last three years, my lovely father-in-law has suffered from dementia. And as his brain changes, he finds it harder and harder to orientate in our world. He gets lost, he doesn't know what normal objects are called, and he finds it really hard to interact with people in social situations. We're really lucky that he still recognises us and seems to enjoy his life. But it's very much the case that when you look at what's happening to him, you realise how important memory is to the identity of the individual. And it's experiences like my father-in-law's, which is one of the reasons why this research is so important. One of the scientists Hugo has working on the project is Stephanie, a master's student at UCL. She explained more about the study Mark's taking part in, before leading Eva and Mark down to the scanner. So we're going to round out at about 44 MRI scans of the brain. And then we're also asking the taxi drivers to complete some other activities. So we're asking them to do an online questionnaire, which is a behavioral questionnaire, kind of about some of their lifestyle habits. So how much do they sleep? How much do they drink? How much are they driving? What areas of London are they driving in? And then we also had them play some selected levels of a mobile application, Sea Hero Quest. See HeroQuest is an app that was created in collaboration with some UCL researchers and Hugo, as well as Alzheimer's Research UK. It's a really beautiful app, and it basically lets you play some levels of a game where you navigate through a little online world, kind of. And so we're getting all of our taxi drivers to play that game to kind of compare and see whether they are better than the general population, since they are such experienced navigators. And actually, Mark, who we're going to be scanning today, has been a driver for 30 years. Perfect. (laughs) That's great. He's going to have a huge hippocampus, I hope. (laughs) I think what's really exciting about this project is that we're using some newer MRI scanning techniques. So we're using a high-resolution hippocampal scan in addition to the traditional structural scans that we always use. So what's cool about that is that the hippocampus is this really small area of the brain, but it is composed of many parts. And so with the high-resolution hippocampal scan, we can actually break down the hippocampus even further. A lot of historical studies were breaking it down into posterior and anterior and just comparing the volumes of those areas. But with this newer scanning technique, we're able to break it down into a bunch of component parts and then kind of pinpoint, you know, 20 years ago, we knew that the posterior hippocampus was enlarged. What area is actually enlarged. So that's going to be really exciting to see whether we can replicate the results and what the finding is, what area of the brain is is growing. Okay, we can head right downstairs. All right, so I'll have you guys sign in. Thank you. Um, Right here. And then I'll give you this as an MRI safe mask. So it's MRI safe because it doesn't have any metal? Exactly, or the metal is is not magnetic. Okay, Mark, you're about ready. Perfect. We're going to run the first scan now. Um, it'll be about two minutes long, and like I say, please stay perfectly still. Okay. Brilliant. Here we go. So, my name's Roger. Um, I work for Buckney here, the Birkbeck and UCL Centre for Neuroimaging, and I'm one of the operators. The MRI is basically a big, complicated camera that takes pictures from three different angles. So you've got your 3D image. So I can see through this window that Mark is is lying very still on a board that's kind of covered, like you've seen in the movies, that's covered by a big ring of 
white and silver plastic that I think is containing technology. And what does MRI stand for? MRI stands for Magnetic Resonance Imaging. The magnets realign the direction of hydrogen atoms within the bloodstream. And then radio frequencies are used to essentially apply energy to those. And as those energised atoms go through the bloodstream, they give off a different signal depending what tissue they're in, which is received by the MRI machine, um, and then creates an image for us. So what you can see on the screen, three images of Mark's brain, which is crazy. Mm. And you can... I guess the reason the brain bits look different from the skull look different from what looks like the eye socket, that's because the different tissues are basically structurally different. Correct. Yeah, yeah. And they have a different response. Okay, Mark, how are you doing? Yeah, good. Good, man. That's it. We're done. Um, Give me just a a minute or two to save the data and I'll come get you out, okay? Thanks. Brilliant. Feel free to sort of wiggle around if you need to now. Hello. Hello. Hi. Yeah, yeah, it was very comfortable. Yeah, just uh, just sort of sort of very snug fit. You know, uh, no problem at all. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Mark, Mark was a perfect participant. Very very still, very quiet. Didn't complain. Oh no, come back any time. No, nothing to complain about, is there Really, you know, it's, uh, it's just doesn't often you get a chance of a lay down in the middle of the day, is it? Really. <laughs> um, so yeah, this is this is you, Mark. Okay, right. Um, see all the inner workings. Well, hmm. okay. Where's the hippocampus in? This little squiggle here that looks a little bit like tadpole or caterpillar. Blimey, yeah. Um, I watch, watch programmes like this sort of at night, you know, and on Netflix and sort of, you know. I'm, I'm now part of it, yeah. That's right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's it, yeah. <laughs> Very interesting, yeah, isn't it? Oh, dear. Thank you for coming in, Mark. Okay, no problem. Great, well, I'll get you get your belongings and you can It's amazing that we can use modern techniques to see the intricacies of someone's brain and all from a scan that takes only 15 minutes to perform. Hugo, Stephanie and the rest of the Taxi Brains team are still analysing the results of the study. So it will be exciting to find out if they've managed to replicate the previous results in even greater detail. And for now, Mark is still enjoying driving around London. Right, now, uh, yeah, Russell Square, yeah, just down from where we've just been. Always a busy junction, this one. Somebody will let me out, hopefully. Here we go. Lovely. <laughs> and at the end of the day, our memories are the making of all of us. That's it for this week. We're back in a few weeks to uncover the science of smell. From why scents can evoke such strong emotions to the work of a perfumer creating olfactory memories. In the meantime, join us in two weeks for another one of our Focus episodes, where Eva's exploring the truth behind false memories and why we forget. I'm Anna Machen, and this is How We're Wired. This has been a Fresh Air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. Subscribe or follow now for free so you never miss an episode. <laughs>